0: I'm going to preach a message this morning that I already know you don't want to hear. What a way to start. It is a theme or a topic that honestly needs to surface from time to time in our Christian experience, but rarely do we welcome it. It is an idea that goes against our flesh. And I remind you, as is always the case, that Dan is preaching to himself this morning as he preaches to everybody else. And it's the subject of forgiveness, forgiveness. Now, we like the idea of forgiveness as long as it's someone else forgiving us, right? We're good with that part. But when it's turned around the other way and we're the one being called upon to forgive, it's, it's not quite so easy to do. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating, and that is that it is really important for us to revisit this subject from time to time of forgiveness because I see in my experience with people that we have, and I, I find it myself, we have a really a very wrong uh, basic understanding of what forgiveness is. We have a foundational core human belief about this subject of forgiveness that goes something like this. If I forgive you for what you did against me or to me, then that means that I condone what you did. Or it means that by my forgiving you, I'm saying somehow that it was okay that you did that. And so because that is our basic human understanding, that is what keeps us from extending the forgiveness that we are, according to Scripture, called upon to give. Well, I want to propose to you, I I wish I could, um, you know, blot out that basic understanding because I want to give you a, a new belief, a new understanding about forgiveness. And I, if you're taking notes, I recommend this is one of those things that you write down. And it goes something like this. Forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. Let's say it again. Forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. No, no, no. But forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. It's the book of Proverbs that reminds us of the importance of this. You know, it says, keep your heart, or some versions say, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. We're going to go to our text this morning And I'm going to refer to it quite a bit. I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles and turn with me. I'm going to just introduce it to you now because I want to plant it in your minds. And then we're going to develop it as, as we go this morning. Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's allow the word of the Lord to speak to us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I didn't say that right. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5. And Paul says this, he says, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him, otherwise he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when, I, and when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Just let me pray a moment. Father, I thank you that your word does its incredible work in us. I ask that you will take the feebleness of my lips and my inability to communicate this effectively, Lord, and do what you do so wonderfully well by the Holy Spirit and penetrate our hearts today. Let your word go deep within us. Thank you that your presence is here, for we say it all in Jesus' name, amen. The Corinthian letters are particularly helpful to us today because they really talk about real church and real church issues. And let's always remember this. A great church is not a problem-free church. A great church is a church that addresses its problems and deals with them. And if you are one of these people who is in, in search of or in pursuit of the perfect church, I, you're going to have to find one with no people in it, okay? For are we not all flawed creatures? We are. We are. And yet, it is always amazing to me that God, in His wisdom, has designed that we should function together, even as a peculiar people, the Bible calls us, to be the body of Christ and to show forth the praises of Him who has called us from darkness into marvelous light. Bless His name. But we see issues in the church all the way back to the first church in the book of Acts. And while the church began in Acts chapter 2. It only took a couple of chapters for problems to show up because the church had people in it, okay? It begins in chapter 2, and by chapter 5, they've got this problem with Ananias and Sapphira not telling the truth about the money they made off a piece of property that they sold, and so they're dealing with that. And according to historical record, this event happened within the first year of the church, And then the following year, which happened to take place in Acts chapter 6, they deal with the issue of people being overlooked in the church. And so if the early church, as we refer to it, had issues, then why should we be surprised when we bump into each other and we have the occasional conflict? But thankfully, we serve a great God who is patient with us and knows how to deal with and, and to bring healing to broken and imperfect people. And what we learn about this about about our text this morning in Second Corinthians chapter two is that Paul is dealing with the situation of a brother in the church who committed such an incredible act of sin that we read about earlier, that it seemed that the people were having a very hard time forgiving him and, and, and were being standoffish to him and not allowing him back into fellowship. And Paul is clearly instructing the Corinthians and, and instructing us this morning in this. He says this, if God forgives people, then we must learn how to forgive as well. And haven't we all known what it is to fight through issues of forgiveness? We've all known what that is. And most certainly it is, it is a battle to fight through issues uh, of forgiveness because offenses can be so great when you consider just even what took place last night and i haven't even seen all of the news i've just heard about it or when you consider the circumstance that was brought to us this week about the young man who so horribly violated the young university girl at stanford university and yet received such a light sentence and it has caused such outrage not only on the young man but his father for things that he said and even the judge who handed down the light sentence and you know you begin to say how can that be forgiven We've had in this very church a, a, a lady who's, uh, who had to go to court and come face to face with the man who shot and killed both of her parents right at gunpoint. All because rather than repaying them, repaying her parents the small amount of money that he owed them, it was easier for him to shoot them and kill them than to repay the money. How does she forgive that? How does she go to the courtroom? And, and literally, and look face to face with the man who killed their parents. How do you deal with that? And while all those are very serious issues, hurt and pain happens to all of us at all levels of life, and we, were, we are never going to be free from the need to forgive as long as we are on this earth. It's C.S. Lewis who says, Everyone says forgiveness is lovely until they have to forgive someone. Here's what we need to understand. And here's another principle I, would, I am, want to apply. I'm applying to my own life, and I would love to implant it with you, and that is that it is this. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. Forgiveness is an attitude. It is not an occasional act. It is an attitude which says to us that we have to walk in it every single day. Forgiveness needs to become not just something that happens every once in a while that we meet out to somebody. It's something that literally becomes a way of life because the people that you and I bump into every day are broken people who make mistakes and they have messed up lives. What is so admirable about the story of David in the Old Testament to me is this. When God first pointed uh, David out to the prophet Samuel, which is in 1 Samuel 16, Then chapter 17 is when David faces Goliath. We all know that story so well, that massive giant that that David brought down with stone and his slingshot. But God in His wisdom says this, it's not Goliath, David, that is going to prepare you for the throne. It's not just the one act of deliverance or the one thing that took place. And it would be easy to promote someone from one incredibly heroic act like we know in in that story. But God says it's not the Goliath experience that will make you the man that you're going to be. but, But it's going to be Saul who will be in another way even larger than Goliath that you faced. Because for the next 13 years you're going to walk with a man that you will constantly have to forgive. Constantly have to forgive as he is out to kill you time and time and time again. But because you've known the mercy of God, you're going to have to show the mercy of God, which tells us that in God's eyes, Saul was even bigger than Goliath. And it was David's experience with Saul that would shape him into the man that God had designed him to be. So then when we look at the church here in Corinth, as we've just read, we find another situation that wasn't necessarily just isolated, but it's taking place over a period of time. And yet the church is struggling so horribly to forgive this man. We find that the man being talked about from our text is the same man that was discussed in the first letter to the Corinthians. And that story is still going on, though we're in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5.1 tells us about a man who was part of the church. But he had been living, with, living in sin with his stepmother, his father's wife. Paul was very clear and explicit in his instructions to the Corinthians about what they should do about it. But a process seems to have taken place, just like a long process with David and Saul's story that took place over time. And Paul has now reached the conclusion that the man should be restored to fellowship in the church. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. We tend to more easily forgive people who've committed sins like we have. But to those who've done something that we perceive to be far greater or far worse, we are much less forgiving. If we have somehow found a way to categorize sin or, or, or evil, bad things in our minds, and we've, we've, we know what we've done and we hit that about here, we'll forgive everybody that comes up to that point. We find that easy. But someone who's done something far worse, no, 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 no. We're, we're not going to do that. And do you know why we do that? This is Dan talking here. It's because it helps us to preserve our own sense of self-righteousness. It's very hard to forgive a child molester. We wouldn't even consider it. I was thinking about something that took place uh, a few years ago. I was called to, um, to jury duty in downtown Fort Worth. How many of you have ever served on jury duty downtown? Let me see your hand. You know, and it's one of those things, here's how it goes for me. I I get the notification in the mail, and you you go, oh, no, not again. It never is convenient, right? Never comes at a convenient time, and so I always have that reaction. But then once I get down there, I want to get in a really good one, you know, and I'm disappointed if I only get I'm in the central jury room, and then, you know, they start calling groups of people to go up to the judges' chambers to be interviewed for various cases. And most of the time, I just stay in the central jury room, and they send me home, and I walk away so dejected and so discouraged because I really, I really wanted to, you know, I had something to really contribute, I thought. So one day... I finally am in the central jury room and there's about they call out about sixty names and mine was one of them and we're sent to the judges' chambers where we're going to be interviewed for a situation where a man was being accused of child molestation. And they bring him in and sit him there next to his defense attorney. And so there's about 60 of us in here. They're gonna stand us up and call us by number. And I happened to be sitting next to a gentleman who was quite talkative and and uh, we were struck up a bit of a conversation quietly and I wasn't hard to figure out. He had a colorful vocabulary and, you know, was rather um, interesting with his foul mouth and so, um, finally, you know, you fill out this form, and you tell them what you do, and you say things about yourself, and, and they call this, they, they're calling the various people to stand up, and they interview them. They said, uh, jury number 36, and I stand up. They said, um, you've indicated here that you are on the staff of a church in Fort Worth. Is that correct? Yes, sir. How long have you been on staff there? None of your business. And uh, no, I did not say that. I did, I did not say that. I gave whatever the answer was at that time, and so they said, you, you see what uh, the charge has been brought against uh, the defendant here? Um, do you feel like your, uh, your uh, involvement with the church will prevent you from being able to be f- uh, fair and unbiased with this situation? And I said, well, all I can tell you is this that if we listen to all of the argument and it turns out that we are convinced that he is guilty, my position would be that of Scripture, which would say it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the depths of the sea. Thank you, number 36. You may be excused. The funny part was this. As I was gathering my, th- I, I wouldn't expect to be ejected out of the room so quickly. I was just saying the first thing that came to my mind, you know, the dangerous. And so, um, well, the funny part to me was this. As I'm walking out the, the door, gathering my stuff, I hear the dude next to me. Uh, he all of a sudden, without being asked, he stands up, raises his hand. He says, I believe in the Bible too. <laughs> and I went, Really? But church, there must be grace for people who have done things more serious than we perceive that we have done. With that in mind, let me take you back to the text again. and the circumstance where now we understand what's going on here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the situation with the man who had been a member of the church and he had been sleeping with his stepmother. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5 Now, keep that in mind as I read again. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused you all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, whatever has happened in the process, whatever has convinced Paul, who was very hard on this back in 1 Corinthians, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote, you, wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And When I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes." Look at me. Comfort is very uncomfortable. Comfort is very uncomfortable. Here's what I mean by that. I think it can be hard for us to say, I'm sorry. I think it's even harder for us to say, I forgive you. Let me put it to you this way. When we say, I am sorry, that crushes our pride. When we say, I forgive you, that crushes our control. Because those words, I forgive you, appear to be letting them off the hook for what they have done to to you or done to us. Saying, I'm sorry, is a pride crusher because it's an admission that you've done something wrong. But to release someone from the offense, that crushes our control, and we lose the power to manipulate and even show a sense of revenge because now we're having to do what the Bible is instructing us to do. But oh my goodness, (laughs) when I read this, Paul takes it to another level. It's not just at the I'm sorry. It's not just at the I forgive you. Look what he says. He takes it to another level that when I read it, if I'm honest with you, I go, "Uh, that's maybe too much for me. To say I'm sorry is hard. To say I forgive you is even harder. But in verse 7, Paul makes it nearly impossible for us when he says, now it is time to forgive him and to comfort him. Comfort? Are you kidding me? Surely we can find another version of the Bible that says something else besides comfort him. Comfort him after what they have done. I'm being asked to comfort them. I'm sorry is hard enough. I forgive you is a bigger challenge. Comfort them. You got to be out of your mind to be asking that. You're asking me, Paul, to comfort the person who has so horribly violated me. That's not fair. What Paul is saying to you and saying to me is this, not only forgive the offender, but let them feel the forgiveness coming to them. And Paul is stretching us to another level. God is not only the one who pronounces forgiveness on us But God is asking us to forgive others, and he's asking us to show and demonstrate the very heart of God to the one we've just had to forgive. Here's the truth, church. We look more like God when we pronounce forgiveness upon people who have offended us than at any other time in our spiritual journey. When you demonstrate, show forth forgiveness, and the offender can feel and be comforted by that forgiveness. There is never a time in your life where you look more like Jesus than when you do that. It's easy to simply say, "I forgive you." It takes a much bigger person than to show that forgiveness in a measure of comfort to the offender. It's like the little kid who was in bed in the middle of the night when this fierce storm came and there was thunder and lightning, and he yelled out to his dad, he says, "Daddy, I'm scared." His dad said, "No need to be scared." Jesus is with you. The boy said, I know that, but I need someone with skin on them. (laughs) So what we must understand is that it's not just God forgiving someone. Sometimes we have to show that forgiveness with skin on it. That's why it's so important for us to understand that if God forgives, then we must forgive others. And here's where it gets hard, and pardon me for being this straightforward about it, but I have to be honest with you. If we don't forgive others, then we have set ourselves up as a higher tribunal than God. And that, my friend, is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. I speak before the Lord, and I speak the truth to you. If God forgives you, then you must forgive others. And if you don't forgive, then you, sir, then you, ma'am, have set yourself up higher than God and decided that your criteria is even more strict than God's. And we must ask ourselves, who do we think we are to put ourselves in that position? And it is an incredibly dangerous position, particularly when Paul is asking us and instructing us through his words to the Corinthian church, not only to forgive, but to comfort. Comfort, you should be happier even alive. Here's your comfort, you get to see another day. And in this verse seven, where Paul tells us to forgive and to comfort, here's what's incredible about it. He uses a word, go look it up in your interlinear. interlinear uh, uh, Bible. If you have one, find one online. It tells you exactly what's being said in the Greek. He uses a word that we know that we've heard. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. The paraclete. Which is another word for the Holy Spirit who is the comforter. When he says to forgive them and to comfort them. He's literally using the word parakaleo. It is the most interesting word because the word means this. It means to come alongside. It is a proximity word. It's literally a word describing walking together. This is getting worse, folks, as we go. I hate to tell you. Paul's message to us is getting clearer when he says, Forgiveness is not something you say. Forgiveness is something you do. Are you having fun yet? Say it with me. Forgiveness is not Of all of the missions trips that I've been privileged to be involved in, 26 missions musicals for the missions department of our denomination, starting number 27 soon, I'm honored and privileged to have done that. Many of them, I was sent to all kinds of locations, Africa half a dozen times, Europe, uh, South America, Central America, Fiji, Cuba. Cuba. Jamaica, lots of places to record indigenous groups singing and producing the music in the video, of all of them. You asked me which one was my favorite. It's not even a question. It was when I was privileged to visit the island of Samoa in the South Pacific. Yes, it's beautiful because it's tropical in the South Pacific. The people are unbelievably kind-hearted. They are large in stature. But not only are they large in stature, their heart is as large as the rest of them. And they are incredible people. There's literally a kindness and a gentleness that permeates the whole place. I mean, no one locks the door, there's no crime. You get there and you wonder, a place like this exists on this planet and it's so isolated from everything else. They are a precious, gracious people. But here's, I was reminded about this. Our word in English is forgiven, which literally means given for. You are giving up for someone else your right to restitution or your right to repayment when you forgive them. Given for. It means when you forgive somebody, you don't have to pay me back. And that's like a legal transaction. I'm not going to sue you. I'm not going to demand payment. I'm not going to ask anything that you make this right. That's the English version. But the Samoans seem to have a better understanding of what Paul was saying when he said that we are to forgive and comfort. Listen to this. The Samoan word for forgive is, if I can say it, fa'a manalo. Fa'a manalo. Fa'a means to cause. Ma, shame. Nalo, forget. It means that when I forgive you, I'm going to cause you to forget your shame. It means not only that I'm not going to punish you or demand repayment for what you've done, fa'amanalo means I have to extend myself to you to the place that I cause you to forget your shame. It's not only lifting the person who forgives is not only lifting the, the legal burden off of the offender, they're also lifting the emotional burden off the offender as well. The forgiver is there to even make the forgiven feel better. Pericaleo, forgive them and comfort them because forgiveness is something you do. We prefer to forgive from a distance, but Paul says not only do you forgive them, but you you, you take the next step. You take the hardest step and you bring them a little closer so that they can feel your forgiveness. They need to feel, Feel it according to the word of the Lord. Thomas Edison was working to invent this crazy contraption called a light bulb. Took a whole team of men working for 24 hours just to put the final thing together. They they worked round the clock. The story goes that when Edison's team was finished with the one light bulb, he gave it to a young boy to carry upstairs into the laboratory where they were going to implement it. You know what happened. Step by step, the young boy carefully carried it for these men who had this team of men who had worked around the clock to get it finally there, and afraid that he might drop this priceless piece of work. And guess what happened? The poor boy boy gets to the top of the stairs, he drops it, and it shatters into thousands of pieces. It took the team of men 24 more hours to recreate it and make another light bulb. Finally, tired and ready for a break, Edison was ready to have his bulb carried upstairs, and he gave it to the same young man to carry upstairs. I would never have done that, would you? I mean, that's true forgiveness. I not only would not have allowed him to carry it, I would have sent the boy out of town, you know, so he was nowhere around. But Mr. Edison, by doing this, was really doing, whether he knew it or not, he was doing what Scripture says by reaffirming the young boy, and that's what Paul tells us in verse 8. Not only forgive them, comfort them, but reaffirm them, and that's exactly what, what happened. There's one more thing that Paul is telling us here this morning that we should note before we close, and it's what I get from verse 10. He says this. This is my interpretation of it. Be very careful. Be very, very careful, because your attitude will have a direct bearing on the attitude of others. He says the way that you respond to the one we're forgiving is the same way your circle of friends will respond as well. If I forgive them, then you forgive them. If you forgive them, then I forgive them, and my friends will treat them the the same way that I do. They will say about the offender the same thing that I'm saying, so the question is, What are we saying? What are you saying about the offender? Because we know this. The power of life and death is where? I'm sorry? It's in the tongue. And the best picture we have of this is the story of the prodigal son where he's coming home. The first words out of the father's mouth when he sees his son coming home are very important for us to note. The son had not only sinned against his father, but the whole town knew what he had done, squandered his, uh, his inheritance, all of that. And everyone was offended by his actions. So as the sun is coming into the village... You know that everybody's ticked off at him, everybody is angry at him, and all the snarls are automatically going to be on their faces, which is why I believe the father ran to him. It's as if he wanted to get to him before anybody else got to him. It's as if he was saying, don't touch him. I want him to hear the, the, the first words he hears comes from my mouth, not from any of you. And before the son could finish his statement to this father, listen to the first words of the father, which set the tone for everybody else in the village. He says, quickly, get him a robe. Quickly, put shoes on him. Quickly, go get the fatted calf. Before any of you can let unforgiveness or offense live inside of you, we're going to celebrate because he, my son, was dead, but he now is alive. And we will celebrate that. What was the father doing? The father was saying, before anybody else can get an attitude, he was pronouncing, he's my son, and we're not in the slave business. We're in the business of redemption and restoration, and you're not going to be a slave or a servant. You're a son of God because you are my son. Unforgiveness puts people in slavery. We hold you. We manipulate you. But forgiveness breaks the chains and sets People free. I found an incredible quote from Louis B. Smeeds, who said, To forgive is to set a prisoner free, only to discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free, only to discover that the prisoner was you. As the musicians come, everyone else please remain seated as we bring this service to a close. The tragedy of unforgiveness, when you choose to not forgive, is that you are bound by someone else's sin. And the devil must be laughing at that. You didn't do the wrong, but you are paying the price for for what someone else did to you by not forgiving them. That's why verse 11 says this, we forgive so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. When you don't forgive, you, hear me, hear me, listen to me, you unlock the door for demonic activity. No, 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 you didn't hear me. When you don't forgive, I know this is tough to take this morning. I didn't expect a Jericho march in the house today. When you don't forgive, you unlock the door for demonic activity. And there are people in this house today who know exactly what I'm talking about. Number one, Satan comes in. But your unforgiveness will unlock the door for that to happen. Number two, he will outsmart or outwit you. Or another version says he will take advantage. And that means he will go beyond the boundaries. He doesn't stay in his place. But your unforgiveness will unlock the door for that to happen. But you can keep the door shut through forgiveness. And There's no place. We're going to really get to it now for just a minute. There's no place that forgiveness is more critical than in a marriage. A pastor friend of mine tells this story. He was counseling a married couple, had them before him in his office. There sat the husband with his head hanging low, and there sat the wife saying this, tell him, tell him, tell him what you did. The husband said, we were at the mall, we were walking, Uh mm uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and this girl walked by. Tell him. Tell the pastor. I looked at her. Pastor says, and then what happened? My wife asked me, Did I lust? And what did you say? I felt I lusted in my heart. There! The Bible says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. That's why I want a divorce. In wisdom, a pastor friend of mine says, wait, 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 wait. Time out. This is a lot larger than what happened at the mall. This is, he left the toilet seat up, I want a divorce. This is, I want a divorce because he won't pick up his clothes. And you know what that is? That's the result of not living a lifestyle of forgiveness. We said it earlier in this message. Forgiveness is not just an occasional act. It must become a lifestyle that we live every day. So this situation was a result of not forgiving all the little things that bug you. And then filing them away in your well-organized filing system. Making sure that you keep record of wrong. You've heard that. from 1 Corinthians 13, what does love do? It keeps no record of wrong. I'll tell you a story on me. I was in a conversation with two brothers of this fellowship. Both of them are here this morning. And in the process of light, casual conversation, nothing particularly critical about what we were discussing. I made a very unguarded statement, which is a lovely, pretty way of saying to you, I said something stupid. Really stupid and insensitive. The conversation went on. Everybody left. It was One of those days, the Holy Spirit would not let me go. That scene came back in my mind. My words came back and haunted me. It was driving me crazy. So I knew what I had to do. I picked up the phone and I called the one gentleman to whom it would have been particularly offense. I'm going to tell you who it was because he's a dearly loved brother in this church. It was Clyde Wyatt. If you've been in the hospital, you know who Clyde is. He's that precious tender-hearted, soft-spoken man who walks in and prays for you. I said, Clyde, you know, when we were talking with the other brother, and I said what I said, I said, I want you to know I am so sorry. That was a stupid thing to say. It was insensitive, and I am really, really sorry. Clyde, would you forgive me? And you know what Clyde said to me? I'm going to tell you the exact words Clyde said. He said, Dan, I kept no record of wrong. (laughs) Can I just tell you what Clyde was doing in that situation? He was forgiving and comforting. I felt the comfort from my brother Clyde because he says, I kept no record of wrong. And we're so good at keeping record of wrong we got to build our case. Never know when we're going to need all this information. Never know when we're going to get in an argument. We've got to be able to pull those facts out. And you did this, and this, and this, and then in January you did this, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But that's not what the Scripture tells us. If we're going to live the Bible way, we keep no record of wrong. When you keep record of wrong, when you keep a list, it exaggerates it. When one more thing happens, And it blows up because you didn't keep an appropriate eye on the little things which unlock the door and let the enemy come in. You're not getting divorced because he squeezed the toothpaste from the middle. You're getting divorced because you're keeping record of wrong when the Bible has told you clearly not to do that. And because you are choosing to not live in an attitude of forgiveness, that's exactly what happens. You know who credit card companies hate the most? They hate the people who pay it off every month. Am I right? My American Express card says that I've been a member since 1987. Back then, the big thing with them was you you had to pay it off. I never really understood the deal, but I, I paid it off. You have to pay it off every single month. And then somewhere along the way, they wised up. And they figured out that we are undisciplined Americans who are impulsive buyers And we can't contain ourselves. And that we would prefer to pay $67 a month minimum payment when we owe them $1,000. And if we keep doing that, then in 10 years, we'll have it paid off. But we will have paid them $11,000 in interest on our $1,000 debt that we had. It works the same way with forgiveness, church. You have to zero it out. Every single day, you have to clear the account. And then what happens when you don't pay your bill to the credit card? Well, you get charged interest. And if you keep doing that, interest becomes compound interest. Which means the more stuff you leave out there, it just keeps compounding in your marriage, in your relationships at work, in your family. And now you're not dealing with one issue, you're dealing with a hundred. Church, forgiveness is not something you say. It's something you do. We're not, we not only forgive with our words, but we take it to the next level by comforting the offender, keeping no record of wrong. But in so doing, it keeps the enemy locked out and the door is shut. Bow your heads with me team, would you please take your place, quickly. This is going to be a forgiveness altar call today, and it's going to go like this. Maybe you've never asked Christ Jesus to forgive you of your sins. I know that there are many people who, it may be a sudden decision, you may have walked in today and the Holy Spirit has worked upon your heart, and you realize that you are far from God and you need a savior, you need to be forgiven of your sins. And today is the day, because today is the day of salvation, that you are to do that. Maybe you've been considering it for a while. You've contemplated, and you realize, and you have realized through a process that you need to give your life to Christ. That's fine. Today is the day for you to do that. And we are making it possible for you. When in a moment we stand, Pastor Brent leads us from the first word. Step out from where you are. Don't delay. Don't don't take time with it. Step out. Balcony, lower floor, doesn't matter. And let someone here pray with you. And help lead you to Jesus. But this is a forgiveness altar call. Maybe there's someone here. That you need to ask to forgive you. For something that you have said. Or something that you've done. And you know. Because the Holy Spirit has been. Doing something inside of you. He's so good at doing that. Just as he did to me the other day. And you need to ask someone to forgive you. But you need the grace of God to give you the strength and the right words and the right timing to do that. So when we stand in just a moment and when we sing the first word, I want you to step out. Nobody else needs to know what's going on. and Just ask someone here to pray with you. Just say, I need help. I need God's help as I ask someone to forgive me for what I have done to them. But this is a forgiveness altar call. There may be someone here. and This gets to be the hardest part that you need to forgive and somehow through words that have been said today you realize that you by your unforgiveness are opening the door to the enemy and that you have placed yourself in a very vulnerable and a very dangerous place by not being willing to forgive someone who has offended you but today you're ready to clear the record and you are no longer going to keep record of wrong, but you need God's help to do that. It doesn't happen easily for any of us. It's always difficult, not only to forgive, but then to comfort and then to reaffirm and to allow that person to feel your forgiveness. You need God's help for that to happen. And I know there are circumstances here that are extremely volatile and extremely difficult. But we're here to say, we, we sang it earlier today. Nothing is impossible with our God. And I believe, and I'll stand in faith with you as you walk to this to the front this morning to have someone pray with you that God will give you the grace to do exactly what you need to do. Let's all stand together. And as we sing the first word, don't delay. Don't you don't need to think about it anymore. It's time to do it. Just let someone pray with you. That you either need to forgive someone, someone that you need to ask forgiveness. Whatever it is, as we begin to sing, step out from where you are and let these folks pray with you in Jesus' name.